episode of ORP, uh, Mike and I are going to be revisiting another classic character from Norse mythology, and we're going to explore how well he's been handled in pop culture. This time we'll be talking about Loki Laufeyson, the god of mischief and god of lies, prince of Asgard, and best known as the nemesis of the mighty Thor. Mike, I know that Norse myth is one of your big interests, so is there anything you want to say before we dive in? What are your thoughts on Loki, and what is it about him you find interesting? I would describe Loki as a man that is too smart and clever for his own good. Uh, this is compounded by his seemingly complete lack of impulse control and unbridled honoring streak. Um, he can also appear truly wicked because there is cruelty and bitterness in him. But at the same time, there are tales of him as a hero. In this way, Loki has both good and evil in him. And I actually... I honestly think all tricksters, all tricksters, but especially the god of mischief, should have that kind of characteristic to them. Uh, for all of his brains, though, he often acts before he thinks and ends up having to connive his way out of a hole that he's dug for himself. By that token, Loki deserves his title as the god of mischief, as it does seem to be his nature. At the same time, while he is a vicious enemy to the gods, he can also be a friend and companion. Ultimately, what attracts me to Loki is his complicated duality and trying to figure out what exactly makes him act the way he does. But as you mentioned in the Joker episode, I kind of have a fascination with villains and what makes them tick. That's definitely a really fair take, and I love a good villain myself. Uh, Loki's one of those characters who gets cast as a villain much of the time, and yet he's much too complex just to stamp him with that label. He's capable of recognizing when he does wrong, at least to a certain extent. And he has this complicated relationship with his family in Asgard that I find fascinating. It, it turned out that Loki's story ended up being more of a deep dive than I expected uh, for that reason. But let's get into it, shall we? That sounds like a great idea, Steve. You know, while I have been a fan of the myth since I was a boy, I too found that there was a lot more to what I had to say about Loki than I originally thought. The more I thought about it, the more I researched and reread, the more I had to say. I, I don't think I've ever delved this deep into the character or examined him so thoroughly. And it, it sounds like that's something that happened to you as well. So so why don't we get us started, Steve? Sure. Uh, so for this episode, we'll do things a little bit differently. Um, we previously discussed some of the material we're going to talk about in our previous episode on Thor. So I'll refer you to that if you want detailed coverage of uh, our uh, Thor and, and the films and the comics. We don't want to repeat ourselves too much there. So even though we'll talk about some of the same stories we previously discussed in the Thor episode, our emphasis should really be on Loki and his character journey. Uh, I'll also talk somewhat more about stories that we glossed over in the Thor episode, as some of them do concern Loki. Uh, hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll get both sides of the story. 
We are definitely going to focus on Loki, but I also feel like it's important to talk about Loki's relationship with the other gods and even the other gods to some extent to see the whole picture. I don't think it would do the character justice to not share both sides of the story uh, in some cases, as you mentioned. Uh, I feel like seeing the gods from Loki's perspective reveals both them and himself. In short, the tales about Loki are often the most revealing about the other gods through their interactions. When I describe Loki's end, I hope to leave you with an understanding of what makes Loki tick, at least from my perspective. That makes total sense to me. So uh, let's get into what Loki's perspective is. Um, as we've talked about in the intro, I know you've done a lot more reading than I have on the North Snip. Um, I know some things based on my own reading. Um, I've read things like Neil Gaiman's Norse mythology, uh, both the prose and the comics version. But it's very clear that the original Loki from the myths is very different to the modern Loki that we see in the MCU, for example. So, Mike, what can you tell us about the mythical Loki? Well, Loki, um, also just called Lot in some sources, had the ability to shapeshift and change his sex. Loki is often depicted wearing a helmet with two horns and is associated with the symbol of two intertwined snakes. Loki is the son of Farbauti. Uh, he is the f his father and his mother, Laufey, which is why he is also called Laufey's son and Farbauti's son. But things are not as simple as all of that. Uh, Farbauti was a Jotun and his mother, Laufey, was one of the Asinjar, or a female member of the Asir. It is most likely that it was his mother's place in the Asir that explains why Loki was counted among them. It would be my impulse to take that one step further and say that Laufey's lineage is why Loki is referred to as Laufey's son rather than the more traditional patronymic surname. Basically, all his cred came from his mother. Um, it was the combination of his Jotun and Asir blood that gave Loki his shape-shifting abilities and magical powers. Loki also had two Jotun brothers named uh, Helblindi and Byleister. Loki is married to an extremely devoted wife named Sigyn, who, who has stayed by his side when all the other gods hated him. And they have two sons, Nari and Bali, which actually totally sound like dwarven names to me, but that's totally <laughs> off topic. But Loki was not faithful to Sigyn and, and often had affairs with uh, the Jotun Angerboda. With her, with her Loki, with her Loki fathered some of some very famous people. I suppose the most famous, thanks to the MCU, is Hell, the goddess of death. The others include the great and terrible wolf Fenrir and the world serpent Jormungandr. Odin had seen through one of his visions that Loki's children would become horrible enemies of the Asir gods. Odin decided Loki's children must be captured, so he and the other gods made the journey to Jotunheim. They captured Hel, Jormungandr, and Fenrir and made the trek back to Asgard. The gods decided that Jormungandr would be sent to the sea that encircled Midgard. For Hel, it was decided that she would be sent to the darkest place in the nine worlds to watch over the dead. As for Fenrir, he was only the size of a wolf pup at the time, and the god Tyre took a liking to him, so it was decided that the gods would raise Fenrir. By the way, Hell's large wolf companion in Thor Ragnarok is her brother Fenrir. Hmm. That's all it's interesting. I didn't remember that. Uh, Loki's children are indeed well-known to fans of Norse myth, though, and, and they're even known in the comics. Uh, Hell is perhaps the best known because she appeared in Thor Ragnarok, and she tends to be a recurring figure in various Thor stories in the comics. But Thor has also had faced Fenrir and uh, Jormungandr, the Midgar Serpent, in the comics as well. Uh, Vali uh, also appeared in the comics, but in an unexpected way. Uh, he took the identity of Agamemnon, who was the leader of the Pantheon in the Hulk comics. But uh, to return to the myths, I always felt bad for Sigyn. 
She never deserved the treatment that she got from Loki, but unfortunately, Loki has a treacherous nature, and that comes with his territory as he is the god of lies. I think Sigan truly loved him, but that wasn't enough for Loki. I'm guessing he got bored with her after a while, I don't know. Um, I can't imagine how sad being immortal and trapped in an unhappy marriage would be. I mean, it's bad enough to be in that kind of situation without being married to the other person for centuries. And when that other person is Loki, well, it's not likely to end well. <laughs> but I think you had another story in mind that touches on uh, Loki's infidelities. I do, Steve, but you paint a great word picture there about the plight of Sigyn. She truly did love him, and when you add the immortal factor to it, it truly makes it a very sad and painful place for her to be in. However, uh, this story, while involving sex, uh, was not really participated in willingly by Loki. Uh, but let me explain, as, as it does involve Loki having another child, but with someone else. Um, I also think this story helps to paint a picture of the dishonorable nature of the Aesir. You know, you, the God, Loki is referred to of the God of, as the God of lies. Well, the Aesir were not necessarily all that honest. Uh, the gods made a deal with a guy to build their great houses in Asgard within a season. And as payment, the man said he wanted Freya, the sun and the moon. Thanks in large part to the builder's uh, great and powerful horse, Falupari. It looked like the man might actually finish in time and the gods would have to pay him. The gods pay not wanting to give up the sun, the moon, and their beloved Freya, and made Loki under penalty of death to force the builder not to complete his work in time. Loki shapeshifted into a mare. Then at night, when the builder and his horse ventured into the forest in search of stones, Loki, as the mare, whinnied to the stallion. Aroused by the call, Svadalfari snapped his reins and ran after the mare the whole night, followed by his master. The work was stalled and Loki had succeeded in his endeavor. However, there was a price to pay and during the chase Loki was at least by my impression raped and impregnated by Svadalfari. Loki still in the form of the mare soon gave birth to the gray eight-legged horse Sleipnir the fastest steed in the nine realms who would eventually be Odin's horse yeah I remember this one a little bit because the story was used in the comic adaptation of Gaiman's uh, Norse mythology and you're right the Asgardians really play the builder dirty in the story I actually ended up liking the builder because he finds a way of overcoming every condition placed on him to finish the job, despite the weaseling of the Aesir. Um, Loki's part in it is really weird, but you see children born of shape-shifting gods quite often in the old myths, if not quite like that necessarily. But Loki wasn't a villain in the myth the way we see him now, though, was he? No, he wasn't. Uh, we've talked a bit about how Loki does not have the best of reputations. So I thought I would tell the story where Loki is not the villain of the story, at least not to the gods. And in this case, he was a companion of Odin. This one is called Hrydmir the Sorcerer, which sounds very Conan the Barbarian, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but on with the story. Hrydmir was a sorcerer and the father of Regan, Fafnir, Otir, uh, Ligenhide, and Lofenhide. Once when the three gods Odin, Loki, and Honir were on their travels exploring the worlds, they came across an otter who had just caught a fish. Wanting a good meal for the three of them, Loki quickly picked up a rock and killed the otter. Then picking up the otter under one arm and the salmon under the other, Loki, Odin, and Honir continued on. Not to, not much later, they came across a hut belonging to a farmer named Hrydmir. Loki, Honir, and Odin offered to share some of their otter and salmon meal with the farmer if he would allow them to stay with him for the night. But things were not as they seemed, and as the gods prepared the meal, Hrydmir reveals himself to be a sorcerer and that Loki, Odin, and Honir had done a terrible thing because the otter that Loki killed was in fact Hrydmir's shape-shifting son. 
Pridemir used his magic and tied down the three gods with the help of his sons, Regan and Fafnir. Pridemir's plan was to kill all three of them for the trespass, but Odin pleaded innocence by way of ignorance and asked for a chance to ransom their lives. Pridemir considered his offer and then asked for the otter pelt of his dead son and demanded that the pelt be completely covered in red gold and then filled with red gold to pay their, pay their ransom. Loki is tasked with acquiring the ransom as Thor and Odin wait behind his collateral. Loki immediately had a plan. You see, there was a certain dwarf named Anvari who lived under a waterfall and could turn himself into a fish, a, a pike specifically at will. He also knew that Anvari had, had a cave full of gold he was looking for. So Loki went to see Aegir and Ran, god and goddesses of the sea, and borrowed Ran's drowning net to catch Anvari. Then Loki went to the Lyre of Anvari, a large echoing chamber with a pool below the waterfall where he knows Anvari often swims in his pike form. Loki uses Rand's net and catches the furious and long-bodied pike who turns back into his dwarven form. Loki then forces Anvardi to lead him to his cave of treasures, and once there, Loki straight punks him for his red gold. Two sacks worth, even. And even Anvari's precious magical Anvarinot ring, which finds sources of gold. Anvari had been trying to hide the ring, and as Loki walked off with his gold and his ring, Anvari cursed his gold and his ring, saying, Take that ring! My curse on that ring and and that gold, it will destroy whoever owns it. Loki then returns to Hurydmir, and he, Odin, and Honir fill the otter skin with red gold and then cover it with red gold using the gold in the two sacks. But one small part of the pelt was not yet covered, and when Hardmar sees the uncovered spot, they use the ring of Anbari as well to satisfy the greedy sorcerer. Finally, having saved Odin and Honir, Loki smiles before they leave and utters the utters Anbari's curse in a low voice. Hrydmir had lost and he didn't even know it. <laughs> Pridemar does sound like a fantasy villain, doesn't he? Right, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna have to hold on to that name. Um, one point I'd like to add though is that the Pridemar story plays into a major part of Norse culture. Unlike older cultures where blood was typically repaid with blood, the Norse had a concept called word guild or man payment. The idea is that a blood price for an offense could be repaid with gold, usually to the victim's family in the case of a death. The closest thing I can think of this today is the idea of wrongful death uh, in a lawsuit where monetary damages are paid uh, to the victim's family in civil court. So what Reidmar asked of Odin would have been common to the Old Norse, and they would have thought nothing of such a thing. But this is a case where Loki does come through for his family, and this is something we'll see a lot uh, with his character, especially in more modern interpretations. But if memory serves, there's another Loki you wanted to mention, Mike. There is, and and we talked about the tale of Utgarda Loki before in episode fifty three, Thor, the mythological figure in the Marvel character, and that and in that story, uh, Loki is Thor's companion. It, it's actually my favorite Norse myth, uh, but I recommend checking out episode fifty three to get the details on that. But for now, I would like to point out that this is the only tale uh, I am aware of where we run into another Jotun named Loki. Utgard of Loki simply means Lo uh, Loki of Utgard, who is given this distinction because the god of mischief is in the tale too. Another thing I'd like to mention is that the tale of Utgard of Loki is yet another tale where Loki is clearly on the side of the gods. When the party was being made fun of by Utgarda Loki and the others for their small size, in comparison with the Jotuns, Loki was the first to step up in the party's defense by saying in response that no one else could eat, fa eat faster than he could. Utgarda Loki challenged him to prove this boast by entering a contest with one of the men there, whose name was Logi, Old Norse for fire. 
And the name is important here. Loki was, in fact, an all-consuming fire. A trough, of, a trough of meat was set before them, which Loki in one hand and Logi on the other. And they were to see who could reach the middle first. They actually met the middle at the same time. But while Loki had eaten all the meat between the end and the middle, Logi had eaten the meat, the bones, and even the trough itself. Loki had clearly lost because nothing can, can out-consume a fire. But my point is is this, that Loki did not try to trick or deceive anyone, and he was genuinely good-intentioned traveling companion to Thor. Loki had good in him, is my point. And with this and the previous story, I think you can see that Loki, despite his end, was a friend to the gods as well. That definitely comes true. Um, for, for this is true. He, he was at one point a true friend of Thor. We even see that in the MCU version, where uh, Loki was a trusted companion of Thor and the Warriors 3 in the first film. It's just that the comics tended to really play up the villainous aspects of Loki with more modern tales from Walt Simonson onwards, act, adding more of the old complexity. As for Utgard Loki, I vaguely remember him in the comics, but he's just kind of a footnote there. But there's a really iconic story featuring Loki that you want to mention, isn't there? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> the next story I want to tell is the death of Balder. This event ties heavily into the next story I'm going to tell you, and both have a huge impact on the fate of Loki. Uh, but they also showcase his other behaviors and personality. So far, I have shown you Loki's lighter side in an attempt to show you the breadth of his character. Now I'm going to show you Loki at his worst in these next two stories. I'm going to abridge this story as I'm trying to focus on Loki here, but I do have to give a little backstory for context here. Baldur was a generous, joyful, and courageous warrior who was beloved of all the gods and the son of Odin and Frigg. But Baldur began to have ominous dreams about his death, and worries were confirmed when Odin went to the underworld to visit the seeress he would often disguise himself from time to time to go see. She told him that Baldur was going to die and that it would be a precursor to Ragnarok. Odin freaks out and makes all things swear an oath not to do no harm to Baldur, which they all did. In fact, after taking the oath, the oath, uh, the gods were kind of making fun of the whole idea of Baldur not being able to die now. They threw sticks and rocks and really anything else on hand at Baldur, and everyone just laughed as these things bounced off of him, leaving the shining god unharmed. But Loki saw an opportunity for mischief, and in, and in disguise he asked Frigg all things had sworn not to do harm to Baldur. And Frigg revealed that only the mistletoe was not asked to take the oath because it was believed to be harmless. It doesn't say this, but I could just hear Loki saying, harmless, eh? You know, with a little chin rub right there. <laughs> but I, I say this because he immediately goes out and finds some mistletoe and carves a spear out of it and returns to the party and everyone's favorite new game of throwing things at the invincible Baldur. Loki went immediately to Baldur's brother, the blind god Hoder, told him that he must feel guilty uh, about not being able to throw things at Baldur and prove his invincibility like everyone else. Hoder agreed that it did he did feel left out. And so Loki put the mistletoe spear that he had made into Hoder's hand and helped him by pointing it to pointing him towards Balder so that he could throw something at him too. But when he did, the spear went right through Balder and killed him instantly. And the gods were mortified and they held an enormous Viking funeral for Balder with the attendants from elves, dwarves, giants, Valkyries, and others. The god Hermod even went to hell to plead for the part of Balder that went, that had been sent down there. He told hell about those above who wept because of Balder's death and pleaded that he be released from her realm. She agreed to release Balder if everyone wept for 
him. Hermod returned with a message, and, and messages were sent out to ensure that all things wept for Balder. But Loki, disguised as the giantess Thok, refused, and so Balder was not set free. You know, this story is a major reason why Loki tends to be cast as a villain. Because you're right, this is Loki at his darkest, at least in the oldest stories that I'm aware of. It's also a major influence on the relationship between Loki and Balder in the comics. And Walt Simonson really leans into that during his run. I think the Baldur story uh, casts such a shadow on Loki that the other tales where Loki is more sympathetic tend to be overlooked. But it gets worse from there, doesn't it, Mike? I think that if it had just gotten worse, it might have been okay. <laughs> but sometime soon after the death of Baldur, one final bit of mischief would finally make the gods say they had had all they could take of Loki. So not only it should be looked up looked at as part of the death of Baldur story as it happens afterwards and both events compiled is really what pushed things over the line. The next story I want to tell is called Loki's Truth Telling, and the purpose here is to delve into Loki's knowledge of the other gods and their illicit activity, as well as show Loki's relationship with gods and point out what I see as hypocrisy on the part of the gods, as they are no saints. I'm not saying they're as bad as Loki, but if my hands were that dirty, I might be less inclined to point out that someone else's aren't clean. The story goes like this. Uh, the sea god named Aegir, the ale maker of the gods, is hosting a feast in his great hall for a number of gods and elves, as he does each winter when he's brewed his special ale. This godly ale is served in magical cups that automatically refill themselves when they become empty. And for the record, we're talking about quite a fancy hall. There was so much gold on the floor that it illuminated the room so that fires were not needed for light. This was like five-star dining for the gods, and it was an honor to be invited to this feast. Once Aegir invited all the gods to the feast, he appointed its servants, uh, Fimafang and Eldir, to welcome the gods into the feast hall. As the gods, as the guests entered the hall of Hall, Fimafang and Eldir heaped praises on them to honor them. Meanwhile, outside, Loki comes out of the woods, and after greeting Eldir outside, Loki asked him what the gods were discussing over their drinks inside. Eldir told him that they were discussing their weapons and their prowess in war, but that none of them had anything good to say about Loki. Loki responds by telling Eldir that he will go inside, and before the feast ends, he will have induced quarreling among them by mixing their ale with malice. But Eldir warns him that if he pours out shouting and fighting onto the gods, they will wipe it off on him. But Loki enters Aegir's hall anyway, and when he does, the room falls silent for a minute. But Loki demanded a seat at the table, and so Loki would not would speak no evil in Aegir's hall. Odin told his own son, Bidar, to get up and give Loki his seat. And Bidar not only gave up his seat, he poured Loki some ale, and soon the feast continued. While Loki is sitting at the table, the gut... The, the gods begin to praise Aegir's servants, Femifang and Eldir. But knowing they were just talking shit about him before he came in, and now hearing them praise two servants, Loki got jealous and could not bear to hear Femifang's praises and killed Femifang in a fit of rage. In response, the gods grabbed the shields, shouting at Loki, and chased him out of the hall and back into the woods. The gods then returned to the hall and continued their drinking. I can't say I blame the gods on that one. Uh, Loki went in there determined to cause trouble, and he got more than he could handle. But uh, please continue. Oh, yeah. Uh, Loki asked for it for sure. 
he shows absolutely no respect for Iger's Hall. Uh, but that would not be the end of it. Loki came back again, and breaking the silence, Loki said that he was thirsty after coming there from a long way and wanted the famous ale of Iger. Calling the gods arrogant, Loki asks why they are unable to speak and demands that they assign him a seat and a place for him at the feast or tell him to leave. But Bragi, the god of poetry, tells Loki that he is unwelcome and the gods know who, should, who they should invite or not. But long ago, Loki and Odin had bonded over their commonality with being tr tricksters. With Odin, it was because he often conned people with disguises and lies as he wandered about. When that bonding occurred, Odin made an oath to Loki that he and Loki were blood brothers and that no ale would be poured that was not poured for both of them. When Bragi told Loki he was unwelcome, Loki ignored Bragi, and speaking directly to Odin, evoked that promise, and Odin relented. As Loki sat, sat, he then toasted to all the gods but Bragi. Bragi responded by saying that he will give a horse, a sword, and a ring from his possession so that Loki does not repay the gods with hatred. Loki responds that Bragi will always be short of these things and accuses him of being the least brave of everyone at the table. Bragi responds if they were outside of Iger's Hall, Bragi would be holding Loki's head as a reward for his lies. Loki replies that, Blag that Bragi is brave when he's seated and calls him a bench ornament. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> and then implies that Bragi would run away when troubled by an angrier spirited man. When Idun, Bragi's wife, tried to hold Bragi back by requesting that they respect Iger's Hall and not speak ill or fight one another. Uh, Loki called her a sexually loose man-crazed woman who once had her arms around her brother's killer. The goddess Gefjan, who is most likely Frigg, as Odin says she knows the fates as well as he, but it could also be Freya, uh, was the next to speak, saying that Loki is known for his mockery and should not be taken seriously. But Loki silenced Idun with a critique about her, a former lover who gave her, gave her a necklace. If she is Freya, this is a reference to Baldur, who got her necklace back for her. But anyway, when Odin Allfather interrupted him to warn him against making an enemy of Gefjan, he... By saying he must be mad to do so, he was not spared either, and Loki called him unjust for granting victory in battle to men who did not deserve it. Odin replies that Loki is correct in what he said, but adds that Loki spent eight winters under the earth milking cows as a maid, and then implies that Loki even had sex with some of the cows while he was down there and had children with some of them, because, and because of this he questions Loki's manhood. But Loki would not be outdone and says that Loden, Odin once disguised himself as a witch and performed satyr, which is a Norse form of magic practiced by women specifically, and claims that Odin is unmanly. Odin's wife Frigg, goddess of marriage, love, and magic, then tries to calm the guests by basically saying they should not dig up the past, and what is done in ancient times by Odin and Loki should never be told. Loki, however, targeted her as well, accusing her of betraying Odin by sleeping with his brother, uh, with his brothers, Billy and B. Frigg responds that if there was a boy like her now deceased son, Baldur, in the hall, Loki would not be able to escape from the wrath of Baldur until Loki's fierceness in battle were tried. To this, Loki coldly confesses to Frigg that he is responsible for the death of her son, Baldur. To this, Freya speaks up in shock, saying that Loki is mad to confess such a thing to Frigg, who knows the future but does not speak of it. Loki tells Freya to shut up and says that she has slept with every single person, elves, and gods in the hall that day. Freya calls Loki a liar and says that Loki will go home in grief that day. But Loki sharply responded that Freya should be silent and called her a foul witch that the gods had caught in the arms of her own brother, and when caught, Freya had farted. 
But Nord defended all of Loki's accusations against the women at the table that day, saying that it is a small matter if a woman has another lover other than her husband. But says it is curious that the woman is God like Loki is talking all this trash about their promiscuity and yet has no babies of his own. I think the implication there is that Loki was not getting any. And what would he know about all of this anyway? Uh, but Loki tells Njord that he should shut up too and reminds Njord that when the Vanir had sent sent him over to live with the Asir during the Asir Vanir War that the daughters of Hymir used his mouth for a privy by pissing in his mouth. But Njord says that he was a hostage for a long time, but out of that terrible time, his son Freyr was born and no god hates Freyr. Loki said that Njord should be careful and not boast so highly of Freyr, and then and then says that he will no longer keep it secret that Freyr was born of incest between Njord and his sister Freya. Tyre then speaks up and says that out of all of the bravest of heroes, Freyr is the best among the gods. He does not harm the women among gods or men, and he sets free those that are bound. But Loki tells Tyre to be silent and says that he has never made a friend. Then to add insult to injury, Loki reminded Tyre of how his son Fenrir, the wolf, once bit off Tyre's hand. Tyre says to Loki that Fenrir may have torn off his right hand, but that Loki has lost his famed wolf when he was bound by the gods, and that the animal shall remain bound until Ragnarok. But Loki tells Tyre to shut up again and tells and says that he slept with Tyre, Tyre's wife, Caesar, and this slight has never been paid for or set right. But then the mighty Freyr says that Fenrir is bound and he will remain bound until the gods are destroyed in Ragnarok, and then adds that Loki too will soon be destroyed if he does not shut his mouth and demands that Loki control himself and calls him a forger of ill. But Loki ignores the threat entirely and says that Freyr bought Aegir's daughter uh, Gerd with gold and his sword. And because of that, when the when the sons of Muspelheim ride through Mirkwood on their way to Asgard to destroy the Bifrost, he will be weaponless and then calls him a poor wretch. Angry at Loki's word, Freyr's servant Vigir says that if Freyr were his son and he sat in such a lofty seat, he would crush Loki to marrow and beat his body to bits. But Loki mocked him, saying, is that some little creature I hear scurrying about and making noise? Loki says that Bigbeer is also goss uh, always gossiping at Freyr's ear or at the mill. Bigbeer then, Bigbeer feeling much less froggy now, simply says that his name is Bigbeer and he is nimble as, as gods and men's may be, but he is proud that the sons of Odin drank ale together. Loki retorts that Bigbeer is a terrible servant and never could do his job very well and was found hiding in the straw when the time for battle came. But Heimdall spoke up and said to Loki that he was drunk and what, what he was doing was crazy. Lots of ale makes men forget to put thought into their words. But Loki tells Heimdall to shut up too and reminds him of the evil fate that awaits him as he spends his days watching over the heavens. But this point, the Jotun, by this point, the Jotun goddess Skadi had had enough and told Loki that he was no longer permitted to speak freely. To sum up the end, Thor, who was absent during the feast, finally arrived and immediately warned Loki to be silent under the threat of losing his head to Mjolnir. But Loki was basically on a roll here and spitting venom in every direction, so Loki sets his sights on the God of Thunder, questioning Thor's anger and taunting him, saying that Thor will not be so bold to fight against Fenrir, the wolf, when he swallows Odin at Ragnarok. Thor again threatened him with his hammer, this time saying that he would hurl Loki into the east where he would be seen no more. Then Loki really crossed the line and said that Thor had cowered before Skramir, and Thor got pissed and threatened to break every bone in Loki's body with Mjolnir, a threat 
Thor would give off it to Loki, actually. Loki tried to talk one last bit of shit, but when Thor threatened to send Loki straight to hell and the realm of the dead, Loki finally left the feast for good. But on his way out, he paid a compliment to Thor and an insult to everyone else sitting at the table by saying only Thor's threats were to be taken seriously. And after that, Loki hid himself in uh, Frangrang's waterfall. When the feast was over, the gods were talking, and with a mix of Loki's confession of killing Balder and all of the terrible things he had just said, Loki had finally gone too far. Now they were going to give him what he deserved. I can fully understand the wrath of the gods here. Not to defend Loki's actions, but the point should be made, though, that the role of the trickster is often to speak truths that others would rather not hear. They also exist to call out the behavior of others. What Loki does at the feast is classic trickster behavior, even if he does it in a cruel and malicious way. Say what you want, but Loki's being very true to his own nature. Um, I'll also add that you don't often get stories where an act god actively calls out the other gods for their indiscretions. Can you imagine anyone going to Olympus and openly confronting Zeus about his numerous failures? <laughs> that person would get obliterated by a thunderbolt in the next instant. Say what you want about Loki, but he got some big brass ones to march in the feet hall of Asgard and call out virtually everyone for their past behavior in a public way. But Loki went too far on this one. It comes back to bite him. So how does that turn out? <laughs> I will go on with the story in a moment, but first, I think you are spot on with Loki acting like a tr trickster. Granted, a particularly malicious trickster, uh, but he is definitely just filling his role in the myths here. Also, Zeus definitely would not have taken any of Loki's shit. He might have tolerated a couple of remarks about the other gods, but Zeus would never have tolerated disrespect. In Olympus, this would have gone down very differently. Uh, but for now, uh, let me get into how it turned out in Asgard. Uh, when Loki saw the Asir approach, he burnt his fishing net, quickly transformed into a salmon and hid in the water. The gods sewed their own net and tried to catch him, but Loki successfully evaded them. Knowing well that it would be impossible to evade the net forever, Loki decided to take a big risk by jumping downstream and swimming to the sea. However, when he jumped out of the water in the form of the salmon, he was caught by Loki. Loki struggled to be free, but Thor held him tightly by his tail fins. The gods took Loki to a cavern and summoned his two sons, Nari and Vali. As, as Loki was forced to watch, Vali was transformed into a wolf, and then Bali proceeded to kill his own brother Nari, leaving his guts scattered across the cave floor. The gods then took Nari's guts and used them to tie Loki to a rock. And as if being tied to a rock by the entrails of his son was not enough, the Jotun Scotty, who had threatened Loki back at the feast, placed poisonous snake on a rock above his head where it dripped venom onto his face. Loki's devoted wife, Sigyn, stayed with him in the cave, holding a dish above her husband's face to collect the venom and protect him. But every once in a while, the dish would be so full she would have to take it away to empty it. At these moments, the venom dripped on Loki's face and he screamed and writhed in pain so ferociously that he created earthquakes. Loki would remain in this cave until the beginning of Ragnarok, when Loki is foretold to slip free from his bonds and to fight against the gods among the forces of the, the Jotunar, at which time he will encounter the god Heimdall, and the two will slay each other. 
As a quick side note about Loki's punishments, it's actually somewhat similar to that of Zeus's punishment of Prometheus from Greek myth. Granted, Prometheus was nailed to a rock and an eagle ate his liver every day, but I think the punishments of being tied to a rock and tortured are certainly similar. Another thing that Loki and Prometheus have in common is that they are both considered to be gods of fire. Yeah, that is true. Um, it is a pretty terrible punishment, and I do agree with the Prometheus parallels. Although I think this reinforces the point I made earlier that anyone who did to Zeus what Loki did to the Aesir would be on the receiving end of some really harsh punishment. And Prometheus's actions were at the very least were noble. I mean, Prometheus was trying to alleviate the suffering of mankind by giving them the tools to survive. Loki was driven by his own pride and anger. And from what you describe of the scene, in both cases, they're both speaking truth to power. But Prometheus is doing so for the good of mankind and Loki's doing it for himself. You know, in the Loki TV series, Loki describes himself as a narcissist, and I actually think that fits even the mythological character most of the time. But honestly, the death of Baldur and Loki's truth-telling are about as dark and ornery as Loki gets to my knowledge, so I just want folks to keep that in mind. Those tales represent the extreme end of Loki's spectrum, as the ones I shared before offer some of the opposite end of the spectrum and even a glance at the middle. My point is that I hope you have you have a better idea of Loki's character in the in the myths here, but there is all there's a whole nother Loki in the comics that I believe, and I believe that topic actually belongs to uh, Steve here. So why don't you take us into Loki in the comics, Steve? Sure thing. Uh, so while digging into Loki's comic book history, it turns out that his first appearance technically was not in Thor, though to be fair, this was a very different interpretation of Loki and not the same as the Loki from the Silver Age onwards. So I'd look at this Golden Age version that I'm talking about of Loki as technically a different character. This Loki debuted in an obscure 1949 timely comic by the name of Venus, where he ran up against the Olympias, Olympian goddess of love. For those wondering, yes, the Venus that met Loki in the comic is the same Venus that was a member of the 1950s Avengers, uh, who were later rebranded as the original Agents of Atlas. The comic itself is a bit goofy, as you might expect of Golden Age comics of the time. Uh, Loki is exiled to the underworld by Zeus, I don't know why, and he lures Venus down there as part of his plan. Eventually, Loki's defeated, and Venus gets the better of him in that encounter. But there's just some silly stuff in it. I mean, the story lumps Loki in with the Olympian gods, which he clearly isn't, and Loki's written as a kind of a devil figure that doesn't incorporate any elements of the Silver Age Loki or the myths. I mean, he's driven by the desire to spread hatred, which isn't quite right. I mean, Loki's more about spreading chaos than anything. But I'll have to say this for the story. I mean, the idea of the Olympian goddess of love facing off against the Norse god of lies is a really cool premise, even if the execution wasn't there. You know, that, that sounds more like a Greek, Greek myth than it does a Norse one, but it clearly has a mythology feel to it, even if the beats don't hit just right. And actually, to that point, because things are so different from the Loki we would see later and, and the Loki of the myth, I imagine that canonically speaking, this story was probably swept under the rug. But you say that Venus is the same character that we would later see in the 1950s Avengers. So that makes me wonder if this story was ever brought up again uh, by her or, or, or even about Loki. Not that I can recall. I, I didn't even know about it until I started digging into Loki's history. I mean, I actually would love to see a rematch between them and to see you know, how that works out. But it's worth noting that the 1950s Venus isn't the real Aphrodite either. <laughs> She was retconned into a siren who just thought she was the goddess of love. So both characters have gone through a lot of changes that would make an encounter between them interesting. 
So from there, let's talk about the Silver Age Loki, where we first see the Marvel version that we know for the first time. Loki's first modern appearance was in Journey into Mystery 85, and the issue is credited to Stan Lee, Stan's brother Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby. This was during the period where the Donald Blake uh, could change into Thor by slamming his cane on the ground, and Thor didn't really remember much about his old life. But let's get into Loki's first modern appearance and what Loki does there. When we first see Loki, he's been imprisoned in an Asgardian tree, under the curse that he can never be released until, unless someone sheds a single tear for his plight. There is a god who does share a tear, and surprisingly, it's Heimdall. You think it might be Frigga, who would have compassion for her son's imprisonment, or even Odin, but no, it's Heimdall, who sees everything and probably knows Loki better than most. I mean, that's just a curious detail and a bit surprising. Loki being imprisoned in a tree until someone sheds even one tear for his plight seems like poetic justice. For when Loki, disguised as the giantess thought, refused to shed even a single tear for Balder, even though it would have brought him back from hell. I don't know if that happened in the comics or if they give a reason for Loki's imprisonment there, but my gut tells me that the writer knew the story I told earlier about the death of Balder. Also, in Loki's truth-telling, while the other gods were arguing with Loki, Heimdall was the one who genuinely tried to speak reason to Loki and, and attempted to get him to see that alcohol was causing him to folly. So Heimdall taking compassion on Loki, I think, fits, even if they are destined to kill one another. Oh, that's interesting. And maybe Stan, Larry, and Jack did do some of their homework on the myths beforehand. It's never stated why Loki's trapped in the tree or what he did, but it could have been any of those things or something that Loki did that we never saw. So Loki's finally released from his imprisonment, and of course his first impulse is to get revenge on Thor. Loki uses his magic to locate Mjolnir, thinking that this will lead him to Thor, and he disguises himself and he heads to Midgard. Loki lures Thor into a battle, but it's a trick. Uh, Loki uses hypnotic magic to put Thor under his control. Uh, Loki wants Thor to give Mjolnir to him, fearing that the hammer will break his control. But Odin's enchantment on the hammer makes this impossible. So Loki creates an illusion of Thor, and Thor gives the hammer to the illusionary Thor. This turns out to be a mistake on Loki's part, because after 60 seconds, Thor reverts to Don Blake, and the hypnotic spell is broken. From there, uh, Thor defeats Loki in battle, and, and which leads to Loki falling into the sea. Thor saves Loki from his watery predicament and then sends him straight back to Asgard. Now, while it's not the most amazing story, I think it sets the tone for Loki and his relationship with Thor. They have an adversarial relationship, and Loki enjoys making trouble for Thor every chance he gets. Loki infuriates Thor like no other, especially when he threatens the people of Earth. But underneath that, they're still brothers, and Thor would never hurt Loki more than necessary to stop him. They have a complicated relationship, which we'll see in some of his later appearances, and especially in the films. It sounds like their relationship being complicated is universal, even if the details change. In the myths, Loki has no uncomplicated relationships. And with the exception of perhaps Heimdall, they are all kind of a love-hate relationship. That's certainly true. I, I think it's at its worst with Thor, Balder, and Odin, but Loki makes all of his relationships with the gods difficult. It could be that uh, because Heimdall sees everything so clearly, he's able to empathize with Loki a bit more. But moving on, I don't think there's much question that the Leavers and Kirby took some license with the bits. Like with the Golden Age Thor, this version of Loki was also intended to be a full-on villain. However, what I think what made the Marvel version interesting is that the Shakespearean drama of their Asgard. That almost certainly came from Stan, who openly admitted to drawing on the Bard for inspiration. Bardic inspiration, as it were. 
Um, as we talked about in the Thor episode, uh, Volstagg of the uh, Warriors 3 was based on the fa Fat Knight Falstaff from Henry V. So in the case of Loki, I think Stan drew, drew on the scheming Shakespearean villains like Iago, who likewise was interested in causing chaos for his own advantage. But he probably also liked the kind of Shakespearean villains who had a Cain and Abel style rivalry with their, their own brothers. Um, King Lear dealt with that, uh, as did Much Ado About Nothing. So it's a trip that Shakespeare used more than once, and Stan probably latched onto it. So the Shakespearean influence is likely why you see Loki as Thor's adopted brother, rather than Odin's blood brother, as it was told in the myths. But as Norse, Norse mythology is definitely more in your wheelhouse, Mike, I have to ask this. Are there any uh, major changes to Loki from the myths that you want to talk about? There are definitely a few things I would like to bring up, Steve. Uh, for instance, in the comics, uh, Laufe is the king of the frost giants and not Loki's the seer mother. You see Laufe in the first Thor movie when Thor, Loki, Sif, and the Warriors 3 go to Jotunheim. Also, Loki was not any kind of brother to Thor. In actuality, and to clarify a comment you made, uh, Loki and Odin bonded over their both being tricksters and became brothers because of a blood oath taken by Odin, as, as Loki reminded Odin in his truth-telling. Uh, so while they are bonded uh, by that blood oath as brothers, uh, they do not share parentage in any way. But as per that oath, Loki would technically be Thor's uncle in the myth and not his brother. Loki did have brothers, though, but they were both Jotuns, not a seer. The MCU doesn't even mention Loki's actual father, Falbauti, and simply mentions Laufe. I'm not sure why this change was made, and in particular, I would like to know why Laufe was changed into a man, because that's just, that is not just in the comics. It's it's in the MCU, too. Another thing that is different is that Hela is actually the daughter of Loki and not the daughter of Odin, like in the MCU, though I'm not sure if the MCU carried that over from the comics or not. So there are not so they are not brother and sister like in the in, in the myths. Uh, but the comics did get one thing right about Hela. Her realm, her realm is Hell, and it is named after her. But in the myths, Hell can also be her name and not just the place, kind of like Hades ruling over Hades in Greek myth. Uh, last but not least, there is no enchantress in the myths. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Amora the Enchantress was probably originally intended as a twist on Freya, though Freya would appear as herself in the comics eventually. Amora would be more concretely tied to the myths by being the sister of Lorelai, who was a real mythic character. Now, uh, Hela as the daughter of Loki was respected in the comics, uh, but as you say, the MCU completely changed that. As for the change to Laufey, I, I honestly don't know why that was done, but I'd be curious to know myself. In my head, Loki's heritage is very important and expresses both his standing among the gods and where he even gets his power from. But, I mean, neither of us know why they did that, so I guess let's just get back into the comics. That's a good idea to me. Um, most of Loki's appearances in Thor around this time aren't really worth writing at home about. Um, usually these plots revolve around Loki finding a way to free himself from whatever prison Odin conjured up, then going back to torment Thor in some way. I mean, sometimes Loki does the mind control thing again. Sometimes he tricks Thor in ways that exploits a weakness of his. But Thor usually finds a way out of these predicaments, and then again sends Loki back to Odin to face punishment for his misdeeds. After a while, Odin gets so tired of Loki's antics that he chains Loki to a rock with chains made of Uru, uh, the same metal that Mjolnir was forged from. Loki even manages to get out of that by tricking Thor into freeing him. But once again, Thor manages to defeat him. So it just kind of becomes a little like the Joker breaking out of Arkham, except with less mass murder and more Loki causing chaos for Thor and Odin. 
You know, again, I'm, I'm seeing pieces of the myth in these stories. As I mentioned earlier, uh, when the gods had finally had enough of Loki, they bound him to a rock. Granted, in the myth, it was his son's entrails and not Uru. Uh, but in both cases, Loki does escape. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, probably Stan went for what he thought was a more sanitized version because of the comics code. But to get back to the story, uh, apparently Loki does manage to appease Odin at some point. Because there is a story later on where Odin does actually heed Loki's counsel, uh, surprisingly. Um, Odin wants to drive a wedge between Thor and Jane Foster, disapproving of the idea of Thor having a dalliance with a mortal. Loki agrees to help Odin, uh, probably because it'll cause trouble for Thor. So he recruits Amora the Enchantress to lure Thor Thor's heart away from Jane. The plan ultimately fails to the frustration of Odin and Loki, but it's at least a break from Loki's usual revenge schemes. Still, I think the interesting thing about this issue is that it establishes the relationship between Loki and the Enchantress. They don't trust each other for an instant, as well they shouldn't. Uh, both of them are master manipulators, and they both know it. Uh, they can be a bit flirtatious around each other when it suits them, but underneath that, they're always scheming to undermine each other when it's convenient. I think the one difference that ends up later undermining their relationship is that Amora genuinely grows to love Thor, and that causes her to change over time. Loki's always been a schemer, and even though he might have affection for Asgard and even Thor on a deep level, that's not likely to ever change. But I think Amora is one of more, Loki's more interesting allies, and she complicates things for Loki, Thor, and the other Asgardians in general. Honestly, I think that Enchantress is what they are going for with the Sylvie character in the MCU's Loki series. Uh, but we'll we'll get into the MCU in a bit. For now, uh, let's get into Loki's next major appearance in the comics, Steve. Uh, yeah, and you're right. Um, Sylvie Lushton is a name associated with the Enchantress, by the way, but we'll get into the details uh, when we talk about the show. From there, uh, Loki's uh, next major appearance is with the Avengers. As we talked about previously, Loki's rivalry with Thor has the consequence of creating the Avengers. Loki uses his magic to try to put the Hulk under his enchantment and then use the Hulk to go after Thor. But this plan attracts the attention of the founding members of the Avengers, including Iron Man, Ant-Man, and the Wasp. With the help of Thor, the Avengers put an end to Loki's mind control, and Loki's plan is defeated by the end of the issue. Uh, the founding Avengers decide to remain a team, and the team is solidified a few issues later when Captain America joins the Avengers and becomes their leader. But here's the interesting thing about Loki and the Avengers. For the most part, Loki doesn't really care about them beyond immortals like Thor. Uh, his schemes just don't tend to directly involve them, and they're more entwined with Asgard. I don't know if it's because Loki is condescending towards mortals and he just doesn't think they're worth his time, or if it's because Loki learned his lesson after the first time he fought the Avengers. Either way, Loki usually leaves the Avengers to pawns or allies like Amora, who have fought them more than once. And as a side, uh, the Enchantress is a founding member of the original Masters of Evil, and she has occasionally helped them out for her own reasons. Um, but when Loki starts some nonsense in Asgard, I mean, most of the time it usually affects Thor directly, rather than bringing his friends into it. I think that sets Loki apart from a lot of villains who target a single hero within a superhero team. And I find that really interesting about him. That is actually quite interesting. You know, uh, nine out of ten times when a villain has a personal issue with a hero, uh, those adventures happen in the hero's solo title. But when Loki goes after Thor, he is such a considerable threat in the comics that it takes the team to defeat him. That is definitely something that is different from in the mist. Thor is more than capable of taking out Loki on his own in the mist, and Loki genuinely fears Thor's wrath. Uh, with good reason. I mean, even Loki's guile can only do so much against an enraged Thunder God. But you do get some other establishing points about Loki, Understand, and Jack. 
One thing I do like is that you get some Tales of Asgard backups where you see Loki interacting with the younger Thor and the other Asgardians. If Loki has a favorite target aside from Thor, it's probably Baldur the Brave, uh, the son of Odin and Frigga. Yes, the same one as from the Death of Baldur myth, and the comics adapted some of those elements. Um, Loki seems to genuinely really enjoy causing trouble for his family in general, but I get the feeling that he really seems to dislike the more heroic people in his family, and especially his brothers. I honestly can't help but wonder if Loki feels like he's overlooked or unappreciated by his father, and this is why he's always trying to bring Thor or Baldur low every chance he gets. Thor and Baldur are both favored by Odin, and, and Loki probably resents that too. But like with Thor, his schemes don't work with Baldur either. Uh, Baldur is a fair bit cleverer than Thor, and he doesn't have Thor's temper, so he's trickier to provoke. But like Thor, Baldur is also a noble and righteous warrior god, and he doesn't put up with Loki's tricks once he's onto them. You might be onto something there about Loki being jealous. That certainly fits the Marvel Comics and MCU character. You know, Loki cut off Sif's hair not to hurt Sif, but because it would hurt Thor, just to spite him. And I can certainly see jealousy being the motivation there as well. And if you remember from Loki's truth-telling, Loki killed Iger's servant Femifang out of jealousy because the gods were praising him. I can also buy that it was jealousy over everyone's love and adoration of Baldur that sparked Loki's scheme to kill him. So that theory seems to fit across the board, if you ask me. Oh, yeah. I mean, Loki's envy and pride often get him in no end of trouble. Uh, anyway, um, like I mentioned in the Thor episode, there's not a lot of note that really happens when you get out of the Silver Age. The Bronze Age was just not an exciting time when it comes to Thor comics, and Loki doesn't do anything too notable around that time either. As with Thor himself, I mean, Loki and the other Asgardians tend to be overlooked until the 1980s and Walt Simonson's run on Thor. That run was a huge turning point for Thor, but Loki also benefited from it as well. Simonson's portrayal made Loki a dangerous schemer with designs on ruling Asgard and truly a villain of arch-villain proportions. But Simonson also made Loki a more complex character, as devious as he is in this run. Simonson starts throwing some real threats to Asgard as a whole, and this is where we start seeing that as bad as he is, Loki truly cares about protecting Asgard in his own way. That's his one truly redeeming feature, and the one element about Loki that makes him a three-dimensional character to me. Loki will play elaborate pranks and make power moves with the goal of becoming king of Asgard, but he's not typically interested in killing the other gods, and he won't allow anyone else to destroy Asgard. Th this first becomes truly noticeable when Surtur and the fire demons under his command stage an assault on Asgard. When this happens, Loki takes the side of Asgard against Surtur, and he teams up with the other Asgardians to drive off Surtur. Loki makes it clear that this is because Surtur wants to destroy Asgard, and Loki wishes to rule it instead. He can't exactly rule over a smoky crater, after all. But I don't think that Loki is being entirely honest with himself about this. He is, after all, the god of lies, and I think he's the god of self-deception as well. <laughs> uh, deep, deep down, I get the impression that Loki truly has a fondness for his home, and even to a certain extent towards his family. I mean, he may hate some of them, especially Thor and Baldur, but there are people like Frigga that he does seem to genuinely care about. But if necessary, he will take up arms to protect them, even if it means fighting alongside Thor and his other avowed enemies. And this is where I think Loki gets really complex as a character. I think Loki will occasionally do good by his family when it suits him, but he'll do it in a way when he can pretend not to care. He'll cloak these actions in a veneer of self-interest when he does anything good. Now, he's not a total monster like Malachi the Accursed, even if he may do terrible things from time to time. Because let's face it, Loki's had thousands of years to kill his family and take over Asgard if he truly wanted to, but he doesn't. He's had plenty of opportunities to do it, too. Not only that, Loki still hangs out in Asgard with all these gods that he claims to despise. 
So clearly there's something more to this action than what he says. And since this is Loki we're talking about, you can't believe anything he says. I think Loki truly loves Asgard and even cares about his family, but he just doesn't want to admit to it. He may see these feelings as a weakness, perhaps, but I think they are there. And as an immortal, it may be that Loki needs the other Asgardians to make the passage of the long centuries bearable. He'd never admit to that either, of course, but he needs the companionship of the gods, even if it's for his own reasons. In my opinion, trying to make Loki a conqueror or a king may have seemed like a good idea, and it, it might have been if it was an original character. But because it's based on myth and they refer back to the myths, then the concept, in my opinion, is doomed to fall apart. Loki's obsession with ruling Asgard, Midgard, or any other realm is solely from the Marvel comics and MCU. Loki from the myths has no desire to be king, and while he may mock, insult, or trick the gods, he shows no sign of wanting to take their place. As you mentioned, he is more of an agent of chaos than one who adheres to an order of ruling. I think that might explain his fickle heart about ruling Asgard. As you said, if that was really his ultimate goal, he would have continued his pursuit of it until it had been attained. I think for Loki in the comics, perhaps it is just a means of mischief rather than an actual desire to rule. Uh, but in the MCU, he clearly has his burden of glorious purpose. Very much so. The nature of Loki as an adapted character works against him occasionally. The true myths have a lot of power, and Loki's defined by them no matter how much he changes. Now, I want to bring, finally bring up one of my favorite event stories involving Loki, and that is the Asgardian Wars. Um, I briefly mentioned this story in both the Thor episode and the X-Men episode, but I never went too much into the details because they just weren't too relevant to those characters at that time. But Loki is a main villain of that event, so I think it's worth bringing up here. There were two parts of the Asgardian Wars event. Uh, one was a two-part crossover between the X-Men and Alpha Flight, and then there was a follow-up involving the X-Men and the New Mutants. Chris Claremont and Walt Simonson were good friends for many years, and Claremont wanted to have some fun playing in the sort of Thor standbys. So along with Louise Simonson and Anzo Sendi, who, were, uh, who was X-Men editor at the time, Claremont hatched the idea of having the X-Men go to Asgard for an adventure. This began with an idea for a crossover between the X-Men and Alpha Flight. The original idea was to reteam uh, Chris Claremont and John Byrne, but that idea fell through, and probably was because Claremont and Byrne weren't getting along at all by then. Claremont was interested in doing it, but Byrne wasn't. So Paul Smith ended up drawing the story instead. Um, I don't think that X-Men Alpha Flight is as good as the second part of the event, but I think it still holds decently well as a whole. The core of the X-Men Alpha Flight story is that uh, Cyclops and his wife Madeline, uh, at the time, long story, are flying a Canadian survey team to a mysterious dig site. Along the way, their plane gets hit by a mysterious energy surge and gets taken down. After a misunderstanding battle, uh, the X-Men and Alpha Flight team up to investigate. And it turns out that a magical fountain transforms any normal human it touches, giving them powers based on their deepest desires. The location was chosen because it was built near an old Viking settlement, and it was settled by Norsemen who had dedicated the place to Loki. It turns out that Loki had made a deal with uh, those who sit above in Shadow, who is a group of gods uh, who sit above even the Asgardians. Um, in, a, in exchange for an unrevealed boon, Loki promised to do a good deed and prove himself worthy of the boon that he received. So Loki creates a fountain as his gift to humanity, which he offers as a chance to remake the world. However, the gift has a price. The Fountain empowers normal people, but it kills anyone who is powered by magic, and Snowbird, who is a demigoddess, nearly dies from the Fountain's effects. In addition, the Fountain's power destroys the user's ability to dream or create, so it takes away their imagination. 
The X-Men and the Alphonses ultimately decide that the price for the fountain is too high. However, an angered Loki demands that the mortals accept the gift that he bestowed upon them. The heroes refuse, and this ultimately leads those who sit above in shadow to intervene uh, before Loki does anything worse. Because Loki wouldn't graciously accept the mortals' refusal, he is found unworthy by those who sit above in shadow, and they force Loki to swear never to directly harm the X-Men again. The second part of the Asgardian War saga uh, involves Loki's revenge on the X-Men and a power play Loki makes to rule Asgard at the same time. Loki had sworn that he would not personally harm the X-Men uh, back in X-Men Alpha Flight. However, Loki, uh, being Loki, finds a loophole in that vow. He said nothing about sending someone else to get his revenge for him. So he sends the Enchantress to a kidnapped Storm, who at this point is powerless, and hurt the X-Men in his place. It doesn't quite work out the way that Loki planned it. At that point, Storm and the New Mutants had just finished a difficult battle with the Shadow King, so they go to a Greek island to recover. Amora takes Storm back for Loki, but she also kidnaps the New Mutants back to Asgard. Uh, the first part of this arc, the New Mutants Special Edition, deals with how the New Mutants escape and defeat the, and the Enchantress. The uh, issue is actually really good, and it explores how the New Mutants all react to being in Asgard. Um, Sunspot loves it because he's being hailed as a hero, while Magma hates it because she's been cursed by the fairies and becomes one of them. So meanwhile, uh, Loki's plan comes into view. At this point, uh, Odin is gone after the battle with Surtur, and the Asgardians have not yet chosen a successor. They plan to hold an Alding uh, to decide on Odin's successor, and that eventually turns out to be Balder. But Loki's trying to make his case to be king, and he does so by offering Storm as a new goddess of thunder to protect Asgard. He commissions the dwarves to build a new hammer for her, which would restore her powers. But Loki, as always, poisons the well by placing Storm under an enchantment spell, then using the new hammer to reinforce Loki's mental control over Aurora. Unfortunately for Loki, the X-Men find out what's happened, and they use a device left behind by Archon to travel to Asgard. Um, it turns out that the Norn Queen, uh, Carnilla, is behind this, since she has an interest in Baldur becoming the new king. So eventually the X-Men figure out Loki's scheme, and there's a huge fight that also involves Hela and the Valkyries. But it's Kitty who ends up getting the better of Loki on this one, and she ends up ending the whole plan. So she blackmails Loki by threatening to reveal his schemes to Thor and Baldur, reminding him that there are too many people who know what his real plan is. This forces Loki to sending everyone back to Earth unharmed, provided that the Enchantresses return to him and the X-Men give up any magical benefits that they received while they were in Asgard. But all of them have to agree with to the deal or none. It's difficult for many of the New Mutants to agree, but they all ultimately do agree that it's the right thing to do. So the X-Men are all teleported to Charles Xavier and Loki moves on to his next scheme. Now, I love Asgardian Wars because it really takes advantage of the setting in, of Asgard in ways we don't often see. Each of the mutants is given a difficult choice because they each gain something valuable because of the time they spend there. So when Loki asks for the X-Men to give up all these things, it becomes a difficult choice for them. And you see who each of these characters is. But beyond that, it's a fun swashbuckling fantasy adventure with intrigue and real emotional weight. Um, the X-Men Alpha Flight story also deals with making difficult choices, but... The New Mutants uh, X-Men story is probably my favorite bit. And I will say this is also one of my favorite stories with Loki as a villain. He's arrogant and truly embraces the notion of being a god of lies. He's always scheming for his own advantage and nothing is ever the way it seems with him. At the same time, Loki does genuinely attempt at times to veer away from his nature. And there's even some inner struggle as he does so. Forcing Loki to do something genuinely good opens up some interesting doors. And then in the rematch, you get Loki showing the occasional bit of humanity. 
He allows Karma to go back home after losing all the weight that she had gained while she was possessed by the Shadow King. And he really didn't have to do that. He also seems to truly respect Aurora, even in defeat, which he only admits to himself. Uh, Loki's pride is his biggest weakness in the stories, and he gets humbled a couple times in his battles with the X-Men. That sounds like quite the story. I can't personally think of any myths that that might be influenced by. Um, I only know of three wells in Norse myth, and really only one of them, Mimir's well, uh, offers any kind of benefits like what you're talking about, uh, like with Loki's well, in that it offers secret knowledge and wisdom. But I will say that if Loki were to create a well that bestows power, I believe it would have been done the way that you described there. There would be some kind of catch and, and a possible curse. Loki wouldn't give anything without a catch or a monkey's paw attached to it. He always has to poison the well or make a trick even out of a good deed. But speaking of Loki's tricks, the next big event that Loki's a part of is the Axe of Vengeance storyline. The idea behind this event is that the major supervillains all get together and decide to fight each other's enemies. So you get things like the X-Men fighting the Mandarin and other really unusual matchups. The major villains working together include Doctor Doom, the Kingpin, Magneto, the Mandarin, the Red Skull, and the Wizard. Damn. You can see the problem with this lineup immediately. Magneto despises Nazis, and Doom as a Romani is not a huge fan of them either. And they both hate the Red Skull. Not to mention that a Nazi like the Red Skull is exactly going to get along with a Chinese imperialist warlord like the Mandarin. <laughs> this isn't a group that would ever work together too well over any length of time. It's almost like the group was designed that way, perhaps by someone whose goal is to create chaos. <laughs> I wonder who that might be. <laughs> as you might guess, the entire event turned out to be engineered by Loki. As you might expect, the master villains fall apart by infighting. They, they do get some early successes with Loki engineering a jailbreak at the vault, which is the main prison for supervillains at that time. The heroes also get some setbacks as they face a lot of villains they don't normally fight and they have to adjust. But the villains are not compatible at all in their goals or their methods, and several of these people just flat out despise the others. There was no way this group of villains was ever going to last long enough to gain a final victory. The Avengers finally figure out what was going on and they unravel the scheme, uh, defeating Loki in the process. However, Loki does get one last shot in before he stopped. He decides to use his magic to create the Tri-Sentinel, which causes havoc in New York. It takes Spider-Man, who at that time had cosmic powers from, cosmic universe, from Captain Universe, long story, to finally take down the Tri-Sentinel. Wow, that sounds like things got pretty crazy there. Uh, but as a closing thought on Loki and comics, I do like that they tried to incorporate the myths into the comic character, mm -hmm. particularly with the journey yeah. into mystery stuff. But while it works well for a comic book character, I feel like they changed so much about Loki mm -hmm. and, what, and what remains seems to be watered down. The connections to real life Loki from the myth are really quite loose and there was a bit too much of picking and choosing certain aspects or elements of the stories or Loki's character to show his complexity properly. I'm not saying there is anything wrong with that as a writer. I'm totally fine with it. Uh, but as a study on Loki, I feel like I have to point those things out. Uh, but why don't we move on to the MCU Loki, Steve? That sounds like a good idea, but before we do that, I will say that I do like the comic version of Loki when he's handled well. He's this complex mixture of Shakespearean villain and mythic antagonist, and that gives him a lot of room to explore. Uh, but let's move on, as you say. Since we've covered quite a bit of Loki's adventures in the comics, uh, let's move on to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's interesting that after all the villains the MCU adapted that had, that had little staying power, 
Loki is probably one of the most memorable villains in the MCU. It's probably helped that to date he hasn't had to compete with huge villains like Doom or Magneto, though that may change when the FF and the X-Men show up. The other uh, thing to point out as we continue is that there are a couple of different versions of Loki in the MCU. For now, we'll focus on the first one, played by Tom Hiddleston in the Thor films, in Avengers and in Avengers uh, Infinity War. Eventually, we'll talk about the other ones, especially when we get to Endgame and the Loki uh, series from Disney+. Plus. But to be honest, I think the original Loki we get in the early films is still my favorite one, but we can get into that distinction later. Anyway, we've uh, talked about the 2010 Thor film by Kenneth Branagh during our episode on Thor, and it's awesome. So I don't think it makes much sense to do another recap of that film. But we really didn't talk that much about how that movie handled Loki, except in a very general sense. Uh, Mike, what did you think about the way Loki was written, and how do you think he holds up compared to the comics? I don't, I don't really feel like I'm knowledgeable enough to answer that question, as most of my knowledge on this subject is from the myths and the MCU. Um, but I, I will say that I do like the MCU Loki as a character, even if he is quite different from the one I am used to. He really is a great villain, and I like that the original Avengers movie brought the Avengers together to deal with the threat created by Loki, just like how you said the original Avengers formed because of Loki. That was a nice callback to the comics. From what I can tell about the comic character and comparing him to the MCU character, at least, at least as we see him initially, I think I prefer the MCU version. He is pretty good, and I totally get why you feel that way. A lot of that is Tom Hiddleston. I don't think there's much question that Loki was perfectly cast. I mean, I had personally had never heard of Tom Hiddleston before he first appeared in Thor, but he hit all the right notes. He has the malicious smile, the arrogance, and the ambition. At the same time, Hiddleston also seems to grasp the things that Loki doesn't like to acknowledge, his love for his family and his loyalty to Asgard. But, Mike, I'm curious to get your opinion here. Um, as someone who loves the classic myths and the original Thor film, what is your take on Tom Hiddleston and his portrayal of Loki? The MCU, uh, the MCU Loki is really not much like the mythological figure at all. Uh, much like we discovered about Thor when we compared the Marvel Comics character to the mythological figure. That said, I do like the MCU character a lot, and I think Hiddleston does a great job with him. In fact, I, I think the MCU character works working so well is all Hiddleston and his his charisma. He is a villain you love to hate, and I think that I prefer the early MCU Loki uh, to what you described there about the comics. I have to admit, I think the first Avengers film is where MCU Loki hit his peak as a villain. Granted, the Avengers initiative had always been on Nick Fury's agenda, but Loki ends up proving him right in the end. One of the things I enjoy about Loki in this movie is that he actually has an ideology. As a god, he believes that mortals are inferior beings and that they should be ruled and even want to be. He even argues that deep down, mortals want to be ruled by anyone who's strong enough to impose their will on them. Um, there's a really great scene where Loki tries to assert his dominance on a group of civilians with this really creepy speech. And then Captain America shows up and that goes right out the window. <laughs> But uh, Hiddleston played as it so well, and Loki comes across as so malicious and arrogant in that scene. So, Mike, did you have any favorite Loki scenes from Avengers that you wanted to mention? Actually, that scene you just mentioned is my favorite scene. And it was really that scene that sold me on the character. I, ha I haven't got it all figured out. Uh, but there is something to be said about humans needing to be ruled or brought to order somehow. Or in Loki's words, it is the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. 
For a lot of people, I think that civility and a sense of order derived from authority is a basic need because it allows for a certain level of security when we all agree to act and work under a certain set of rules or authority. I think it is on that level that Loki's speech connects to a truth, and that is in fact what makes it so creepy. Add to this that he is a god, and the truth he is and the truth he is playing with gets more intense. It is said that we all worship something, even if it's just ourselves. And humans have been creating gods and higher beings to worship for thousands of years. So Loki has a point when he asks them if kneeling before him is not their natural state. I felt like the MCU really tapped into a nice vein there for Loki's character. Plus, <laughs> Iron Man busting in with shoot to thrill over the PA system. <laughs> is my favorite Iron Man entrance of his out of the entire franchise. As soon as he breaks into Natasha's headset with, did you miss me? She shakes her head. I got excited. And then that line, make your move, Reindeer Games. I don't know about you, but I cheered when I saw that in the theater. But that is that, totally that was, the point. <laughs> <laughs> that was indeed a great moment. But to your point in the earlier scene, uh, Loki acknowledges the idea that humans are pack animals, and that makes sense from his point of view. He has a way of speaking uncomfortable truths, as he is a trickster, even if they're meant to serve Loki's own purposes. That intrigues me. Another point where Loki really gets interesting is in his scene opposite Black Widow when he's in prison in the helicarrier. The whole thing is a mental duel between Natasha and Loki, where she's trying to get information out of him, and he's trying to break her spirit. There's a point where Loki looks like he's about to come out ahead, trying to break her by showing her how far the darkness she's truly been. And it seems like for a moment, he might have gotten her with that. But then Natasha uses it to ex get exactly what she wants from Loki. Uh, Scarlett Johansson and Tom Hiddleston play off each other very nicely in that scene, too. Oh, that def that scene definitely shows Natasha to be the smarter of the two of them. And I think it also works as a great comeuppance for Loki, as he has tricked many with his silver tongue. The look on his face when he realized he's been beat at his own game was priceless. <laughs> but let's get into Loki's next appearance. Uh, let's do that. Um, now, from here, Loki's next appearance isn't as fun to talk about. I, I'm just not a fan of Thor The Dark World by any stretch, and I don't want to get too much into the plot of that film. It's honestly really not worth discussing, even especially since they ruined Malekith and Curse in it, uh, which to me is amazing considering they had Christopher Eccleston, of all people, as Malekith. How you can get the Ninth Doctor as your villain and screw it up this badly. It's so disappointing, but let's move on, as you say. At the same time, I feel like the one redeeming feature of an otherwise forgettable film is Loki. Um, Loki gets some real character development, and much of that comes from his relationship with his foster mother, Frigga. I always felt like it made sense that Frigga was the one Asgardian that Loki truly loved, what other pro whatever problems he might have had with Odin or with Thor. So losing Frigga ends up being the catalyst for Loki starting to change, leading him to ally with Thor against Malachi. And really, I think that perfectly shows where Loki's loyalties really lie. So while Dark World ends up as one of the worst regarded of the MCU films, uh, Loki and Hiddleston's performance are the only genuinely good things in it from my point of view. But what are your thoughts on Loki's character arc in the second film, Mike? Loki would go on adventures with both Odin and Thor, and in those cases, they would often work together. I felt like this story was a callback to those times and was intended to reflect that Loki is not all bad. In fact, his plight is an understandable one. He had believed a lie told to him by his father that caused him to make certain choices he felt were fully justified under the cover of that lie he believed. 
So when he is punished for it, I truly get why Loki doesn't understand. He feels betrayed by his family and robbed of his birthright. What makes the situation all the more worse is that Odin in the Dark World is acting as impetuous as Thor was in the first movie, and Odin punished him for it. Mix that with how Loki is treated, and the whole system seems to fall apart. That also paints Loki as a hypocrite and a liar. That is unfortunately true. I mean, there's a, long, a lot wrong with Thor the Dark World, and the lack of character consistency between films is a big part of it. There's a definite sense of, oh, well, it's only bad when I do it because of it. And that's probably why Loki feels a lot more sympathetic than the other characters in the film. It certainly sets things up so that even if we don't agree with what Loki does, we can certainly understand how he feels and see the very obvious injustice there. I think I have two lines from Loki that I feel like were very telling of Loki's character in the MCU and also a bit of a nod to the mist. Like when Loki said that satisfaction was not in his nature. I don't know. It reminded me of Joker saying he was just a dog chasing a car. He, he wouldn't even know what to do with it if he caught it. And that is very Loki. Or, or when Frigga asked him not to make things worse and he says, define worse. <laughs> I thought that was reminiscent of Loki oh. never really being able to figure out how far was too far so that aspect of the story arc was nice but we definitely see an arc happen in this film loki indirectly caused all of the havoc across the nine nine realms by his part in the fall of asgard and the breaking of the bifrost plus even after curse saw that loki needed to be in his cage and did not let him out he aided the dark elves by telling curse where to find frigga and is therefore at least secondarily responsible for curse killing frigga that breaks Loki, and you can see it when he trashes his room and his hair gets all frazzled. Like he's he's just really reached rock bottom. When Thor asked for his help, it was the death of their mutual mother and Loki's sense of death, sense of debt over his part in her death that convinced him to help Thor. In that in the movie, Loki says that he has done all that he has done because he wanted to, in his words, to prove to father that I am a worthy son. When he wakes, I will have saved his life. I will have destroyed that race of monsters, and I will be there, I will be the true heir to the throne. All along, Loki has wanted to be considered worthy, especially since Odin pitted Loki and Thor against each other by saying they were destined to be king, but only one of them would be. I think Loki felt like sacrificing himself, saving his brother's life and avenging his mother's murder, that he would somehow ultimately prove that he is, in fact, worthy. But of course, in typical Loki fashion, we were all fooled and we see Loki at, at first disguised as Odin and happy as pigs and shit that Thor is denying the throne and focusing on Midgard. Then, of course, we see Loki in his true form with that wicked grin. But while it was interesting and okay, it, it felt like a bit of backpedaling, as if he may not have learned as much as we thought he did. This is one of the things about Loki that we may never be fully certain about. As you pointed out, and as we've alluded to previously, Loki's true to his nature, and he has difficulty trying to be anything other than that. At the same time, though, we've seen that he is capable of doing the right thing from time to time, and not just because it's to his advantage. A large part of Loki's problem is that he lies to himself constantly, too, and because he believes his own nonsense, he falls back into his old patterns. But he's not completely hopeless either, and he is capable of changing at least somewhat. To what extent Loki can change and how much he'll always be the god of lies, I don't think anyone will ever know. Least of all, Loki. <laughs> you know, that is one thing that actually seems to go unspoken about gods and myths, uh, for the most part, 
and just across the board. I mean, yes, they are immortal. They are powerful, uh, but they are also locked in place. Gods have a few defining traits, and they don't deviate from those in a sense that they grow and mature and change over time. Whereas humans, while considerably less powerful and possessing shorter lives, can do those things. Ultimately, I think that is where the character of Loki in the MCU will always fall short. He cannot change and grow and remain true to what a god is. He is the god of mischief, and he always will be. Honestly, that same thing is true of all the gods. So the MCU portraying them as growing and maturing over time is just not accurate. Humans, unlike gods, possess free will, and the gods are eternally bound to their traits. Uh, but let's get into the next Thor film. Sure. While I have mixed feelings about Thor Ragnarok and Thor is not that consistent between films, um, I can't see the same thing for Loki. I feel like Loki is the one character who generally gets a more or less a consistent character arc between all three of the first Thor films. He starts off as a villain in Thor 1 and in Avengers, but over the next two Thor films, Loki gets a solid redemption arc for the most part. Much of what we see in Ragnarok is Loki uh, making his peace with Odin and with Thor and then fighting within himself to be the prince that Asgard needs at its darkest hour. It takes Loki a while to get there, and he's definitely tempted to do the wrong thing throughout the film, but Loki's love for his family ultimately wins out over his self-interest. By the end, I feel like Loki went a long way towards earning his redemption and his place in the new Asgard. But I'm curious, Mike, uh, what did you think about where Loki ended up by the end of that film? I think I think I'm going to have to just disagree with you on this one. At least... And at least my, 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 my takeaway was different than yours. How about that? Um, yeah. Honestly, after the end of Thor The Dark World, I find myself feeling like Thor Ragnarok confirms my suspicions that Thor has totally backpedaled. I'm uh, sorry, that Loki has totally backpedaled. I mean, it seems pretty clear that, that all of Loki's growth in the last film was just a ruse to take the throne. And what did he do with it, with it when he took the throne? Was he the benevolent leader he claimed he wanted to be in the Avengers? Or the king his father wanted to be? No. He sat around on his ass while the Nine Realms again succumbed to chaos. Then, even as Thor points out, he is right back to his old backstabbing tropes. He seems to be back on the right track by the end of uh, by the end of Ragnarok, but I don't trust him, and I don't think anyone else should either. He is the Scorpion, and the Scorpion and the Toad story. At least that is how I felt until we got into Infinity War. Also, I have to say one thing real quick: the myths make it very clear that Ragnarok is meant to be the death of the gods and the destruction of Asgard. It is not a recurring five thousand year long cycle. <laughs> but that rants aside, why don't we switch over to Infinity War, Steve? Uh, sure, and I think you touched on a lot of what's off about Taika YCC's take on the Thor mythos. I mean, he's admitted to not really caring that much about the comics beyond the visuals, so I'm not surprised you had that reaction, but let's move on. While I generally like Infinity War, I was disappointed about one thing about it, and that was its treatment of Loki. He was killed off mainly to establish how powerful and, and dangerous Thanos is and to give stakes in the story. I just can't help but think that not only could it have been done better, but that Loki by that point had deserved better. Is it, is it, did it seem to you like nobody knew what to do with Loki after he finally earned his redemption? I mean, he's basically dispatched in the opening scene of Infinity War in what seemed like an anticlimactic fashion, and then nothing is done with him after that. I got the impression from Ragnarok that Loki was going to be an important player in New Asgard, but nothing. He's just cleared out of the way uh, with a heroic sacrifice, and then nothing. I, I got the feeling like they just had nowhere else to go with Loki, so they just killed him. 
Also, I have to say that I never found Loki's death all that convincing. In part, this is because I felt like Loki would have done something smarter than that. I can buy Thanos killing Loki. I mean, he's smart and powerful enough to pull that off. But I don't buy Loki pulling a sacrifice play like that without some kind of plan behind it. For the longest time, I honestly felt like Loki had somehow failed his death the whole time, and that Loki had somehow managed to escape in the interim. But what are your thoughts on it, Mike? As I mentioned a bit before, I felt like Loki's sacrifice and death at the beginning gave legitimacy to his actually turning over a new leaf. Uh, But it did kind of suck at the same time. I mean, (laughs) I finally believe Loki and now he's dead. (laughs) I I, I think I was with you in assuming that Loki had somehow survived and was in fact okay somewhere, as it seemed to be the case when he met his end a couple of times already. I too was sure that there had to be some kind of plan in motion you mentioned that the, you mentioned this that the scene was intended to give weight to the situation and it definitely did that with between what happened with uh, the people of asgard to thor and to loki uh, did i want to see loki in the new asgard and what would become of his conversion yes but i get why they did that why they did it that way so so why don't we get into the next loki we see steve Sure. After Infinity War, I think it's safe to say that the Loki we see is a brand new character. The endgame version of Loki is from a different timeline because history has changed. So everything from Dark World up to Infinity War didn't happen to the Loki that we see in Endgame and in the Disney Plus Loki series. In fact, that becomes a huge plot point in the early episodes of Loki. Uh, Mike, what did you think about this decision? Also, do you think it was a good idea to bring Loki back through time travel instead of just continuing with the previous version? It would seem that Marvel's whole plan with Loki is a continual growth and regression arc. I say this because their plans after Endgame was to go through the whole growth journey once again, but this time with an alternate timeline Loki. Honestly, I found this to be a little frustrating. The belief I was finally able to have in Loki and his change doesn't matter anymore. He's right back to being the same villain once again. It's like they only have one story to tell with Loki and they're just going to keep rehashing it. Honestly, it's a good thing that I liked the Loki series because I was kind of tired of the same old, same old from Loki. But even with my issues of refuse, uh, of reusing the same arc over and over for Loki, if they were going to continue the story, I would rather it be an alternate timeline version than to take away from the weight of Loki's death in Infinity War. Uh, what you describe echoes my own frustration. I mean, they basically redo the same redemption arc again after resetting him back to zero. It, it's just the way they go about it is different. But let's get into what happens. Um, the first episode spends quite a bit of time in recap, and it's quite good in establishing the Loki that we saw before. Beyond that, this is an episode that does two things. It helps establish what the Time Variance Authority is all about and what people like Agent Mobius do. For those who don't know, the uh, TVA does come from the comics, even if they don't work quite the same way. The Sacred Timeline and Miss Minutes and things like that are inventions of the MCU. But the thing I love about Mobius is that he was based on the late Marvel writer and editor Mark Gruenwald. The idea was that time was maintained by a bunch of clones of Mark Gruenwald because he was the expert on Marvel continuity and he kept things straight as part of his job. Owen Wilson definitely has a Gruenwald look to him, which I appreciate. So I love that little bit. But the show also deals with one point we discussed earlier, and that is that Loki lies to himself as much as he does to everyone else. One of the recap scenes even has Frigga point this out. He's perceptive about other people, but not himself. This version of Loki is basically the person he was before Dark World, but there's still that spark of the person he might have become. 
So Mobius really tries to hit the core of this with his interrogation, asking whether Loki enjoys killing people. But I found Loki's answer to this question interesting. He doesn't enjoy it, but he feels it's necessary to maintain the lie and the illusion that he's in control. This is a Loki who feels cast adrift with no purpose now that he's a variant, with no place in the timeline. So this is a different Loki, but there's enough there that he's recognizable as the Loki of the films. I think one of the things that made Loki a good series is that it does cause Loki to go through a self-examination. He seems a lot more contemplative in this series. And honestly, that is one of the things that sold me on his character arc actually sticking this time. I feel like Loki was motivated by guilt to change before, but I feel like Mobius and being out of time uh, really sparks the need for Loki to reevaluate things. Because as you say, he has definitely been deceiving himself. I felt like Loki really started looking within for real change here rather than surface differences. A mask of goodness will only last for so long and eventually surface changes will crack. Right. And we'll see how deep the cracks go by the end of the season. So the second episode gives us some curious reveals. One of the interesting points is that the, in the uh, variant Loki's method, the idea of using an extinction level event as a hiding place for the TVA is a cool idea. And it leads to a very funny scene with Loki and Pompeii to prove to mm -hmm. Mobius that changing events in an extinction event wouldn't be noticed. But I think the interesting question is who the variant Loki turns out to be because it connects to the mythology and to the comics. So Mike, what can you tell us about her? Um, in Thor number five from 2008, during the events of Ragnarok, Loki died and reincarnated his soul into the body that was supposed to go to Sif, taking it over and pushing her consciousness out into a, into the comatose mind of an elderly woman named Miss Chambers. That was actually the first appearance of Lady Loki. Lady Loki initially hid Sif's trapped consciousness uh, from her brother Thor, stranding Sif in the body of Miss Chambers for a couple of years in the comics. Finally, in Thor 602 from 2009, Thor succeeds in resurrecting Sif back into her original body. Also that same year in Thor Volume 3, Number 12, Hela restores Loki to the Loki he previously was, the son of Laufey. As I mentioned before, Loki also took the form of an old woman named Thok and a mare. So Loki becoming a woman was not new to the scene. Or the mare for that example, or that matter. <laughs> um, I know. I never read any of those stories, I must admit. I mean, I knew of Lady Loki, and I was fine with it because it referenced the mythic version. I just never really thought much of it. There's another thing I wanted to add, though. So you previously mentioned, Mike, that the name Sylvie came from the comics, too. That's true. That's a reference to Sylvie Lushton, who was a regular human girl that Loki bestowed uh, powers to. Lushton took the name of the Enchantress, thinking that she was related to the Asgardians. Uh, this version of Sylvie is a subtle nod to that character. Oh, that is really cool. I actually like that a lot. Uh, but but let's move on to episode three. Sounds good to me. Um, from there, the third episode centers on the bonding between the two Lokis on the planet Lamentus, which is about to be destroyed. I love the name of that planet, by the way. It yes. plays out like a weird. It plays out like a weird enemies to lover style romance, which gets even more bizarre when you consider that they're multiversal analogs of each other. It gets almost in the Lannister territory when you start to think about it too serious. But there is one element about it that makes sense. Uh, the only one that Loki could truly love is himself. At the same time, even though they're both Loki, Sylvie is a Loki who had a very different past than the one we know. That does actually make a lot of sense. Not only could Loki only ever truly fall in love with Loki, it would take a Loki to love a Loki. 
good stuff there, Steve. Um, I liked that scene where the two of them tried to ask the lady in the house about how to find the train. When they approach the woman in the shack on Lamentus One, Sylvie acts rather impulsive and gets blasted out into the yard. Uh, that is a trait of Loki's from the myths. Um, as I mentioned in the myth section, Loki would often hurl himself into situations uh, acting purely on impulse and then have to think his way out of it. At the same time, Loki cautions Sylvie that brute force is no substitute for diplomacy and guile. And that line, too, is pure Loki from the myths. It, it really felt like how two Lokis might interact with one another. I, I really thought it was well done. Yeah, they're certainly fun to watch together. I mean, they represent different aspects of what Loki is, and he has so many layers. I also want to point out one moment from the episode that struck me. Hiddleston's Loki ends up having rebels in the ship they've infiltrated, and he gets drunk. What he does while drunk shows quite a bit about him. Uh, in vino veritas, as they say. Um, he starts <laughs> singing Asgardian songs in Norse, and then uh, even, and then even does the another thing that Thor does in the 2010 Thor film. So even though Loki resents his people on one level, he seems to embrace Asgardian culture and the ways of his family when the mask is stripped away. It's a small moment, but it's a character-defining one. Uh, there is something to be said about that with the mythological character as well. You know, while he is half Jotun and did spend time among the giants, Loki spent most of his time among the Aesir. I think that even if part of him hated the Aesir, and especially Thor and Balder, I feel like considering it was jealousy, uh, it was jealousy that caused Loki to act maliciously on more than one occasion, I can certainly see a love for the gods, and perhaps his real issue might have might be that he feels like he doesn't really fit in. In that respect, I can totally see Loki sing, taking to singing Asgardian drinking songs, especially when he's drunk and likes, likely missing Asgard now that he's outside of time. You know, I do like the idea that Loki's become homesick from being away from Asgard for so long. Uh, you may be onto something there. But if he is, he doesn't admit to it because he has to maintain the lie. Now, in the Nexus event, um, there's a callback that might interest you, Mike. Mobius throws Loki into the past where Sif punches him in the face for cutting her hair as a joke. I like the way they use that to show that Loki was acting out through his pranks and that much of his trickery is a cry for attention from an orphan prince who never felt like he fit in. It's a good scene and an interesting take on him. But the interesting part to me is that the scene is based on a classic myth. So, Mike, do you want to tell us about where the story comes from and maybe talk about how the Loki show adapted it? Sure, Steve. In our Thor episode, we talked about the story uh, where the gifts from the gods were made by the dwarves of Svartalheim, including Mjolnir for Thor, the foldable ship Skidbladnir, uh, and Golenbursti, sorry, for Freyr, an exquisite golden boar who was faster than any horse apart from Odin's Sleipnir. They also made the golden ring Droughtnir for Odin, which created eight new rings of gold every nine nights. And last but not least, the spear of Gung Gungnir for Odin as well. But what I did not mention, at least I don't think I did, uh, is why Loki had to have those things made to begin with. It goes like this. Loki cast a sleeping spell on Sif, causing her to fall into a deep sleep. And apparently this was done at some distance because he had to find her sleeping afterwards. But when he did, Sif was lying there with her gorgeous golden hair flowing all around her, and a wicked grim grin came across his face. This could be a chance to make 
make trouble in Thor's household. He knew that Sif's hair of gold was Thor's greatest treasure, and he was determined to take it away from him, just to be, as my grandpa would say, an honorary cuss. Looking, Loki cut her hair as she slept. This was a huge deal, as Lady Sif was known for two things, her divine beauty and her golden hair. This is the moment referenced in the Loki TV series when Sif keeps beating up Loki for cutting her hair. Thor was pissed and grabbed Loki by the throat and threatened to break every bone in his body. As things had quickly gotten out of hand, Loki agreed to have the dwarves of Svartalfheim fashion Sif hair that was literally gold and thus more luxurious than her natural hair. As a quick reference to why Lady Sif has black hair in the MCU and golden hair in the mist, uh, Lady Sif once had golden hair in the comics, and much like episode four of the Loki series, series, she lost it to Loki. In the comics, Sif loses all her original hair to a cruel trick on uh, uh, on Loki's part, whereas in the MCU, he cuts off only, a, only some of it. Her hair became dark in the comics when Loki replaced it with the hair of dwarves, a detail later revealed in Thor, Son of Asgard, number eight from 2004. The MCU also incorporated Nidavellir as bits of the and bits from the Treasure of the Gods myth into Infinity War by having Thor meet up with one of the very dwarves from that story, Eitri, uh, who forges the axe Stormbreaker for Thor. Uh, he appears in the, the Asgardian Wars as well, by the way. As an aside, Stormbreaker was the hammer used by uh, Beta Ray Bill, and it sucks that we still haven't seen Beta Ray Bill anywhere in the MCU. But uh, getting back to Loki. The show disregards a lot of the myth, and I do remember that uh, Loki was forced to make restitution for cutting her hair. We never really saw any of that, unfortunately. But I will say that I like the idea of dropping Loki into a time loop. One might almost say a Mobius loop, where Sif just kicks Loki's ass over and over. I like that Loki makes amends with both her and with himself through that scene. So I like the purpose it serves on a character level, even if they change a lot from the mythology. Thanks. I, I see what you did there with the Mobius loop, and I like it. <laughs> as far as Loki getting his ass kicked over and over, I think that was integral to Loki's actual growth. Uh, but I will get more into that in my final thoughts on the series. But let's move on to the next bit. I don't know about you, but I was a bit disappointed about the revelation behind the Timekeepers. Um, in Avengers Forever, the Timekeepers were the cosmic force trying to maintain the flow of time. Immortus actually worked for them. But it seems like here they're just uh, used as a Wizard of Oz front for the man behind the curtain, uh, which turns out to be Kang. Uh, there are times when the MCU seems not to take the source material too seriously, and then they'll just do whatever they want because they can. And, and I got that impression here. It was not just you. Uh, finding out the, the Wizard of Oz secret really took a lot of the wind out of the sails that had been established. I like the idea of Kang being behind it all, but making the timekeepers robots was a big letdown for me as well. Absolutely. Uh, the other thing I got from the final scene of this episode is that I feel more and more like Sylvie is meant to be the hero of the story. Loki himself doesn't have, really have a huge personal stake in what's going on beyond his attachment to Sylvie. I mean, for the most part, he's just trying to get out of the situation he's in and survive. The one who does have a personal stake is Sylvie, uh, whose life was stolen from her rival Ravana. And Ravana is another change from the comics I'm not fond of because they changed her entire character. But that's another issue. Anyway, uh, Sylvie doesn't even know what it is to be a Loki because she was snatched from Asgard as a child. Um, I get the feeling that this show is setting Sylvie up to be a bigger character. That's not necessarily a bad thing, just something I noticed. 
there is definitely something to her being a sort of hero for the story. But I couldn't help but think about the Enchantress the whole time. And now that I know that there's a connection between her and the Enchantress, that makes much more sense. Uh, because it certainly felt like a big old Enchantress intro. And I think that might ultimately be where they're going with this. At the same time, Sylvie is very much what Loki's path might have been if he too was snatched away from Asgard. I think you're right. Uh, probably they intended her to be the Enchantress at first, and then they changed her into a Loki variant. The Sylvie name was kept as a nod to that idea. But you may like this next bit, Mike. I, I know how much you love your references. The fifth episode is one that is full of callbacks and references to the comics. The most obvious is with all the alternate Lokis that appear in the episode, including Kid Loki, Old Man Loki in the classic costume, Alligator Loki. Um, perhaps that's a nod to Frog Thor. Um, President Loki, which is a reference to the Vote Loki comic, and others. Um, Alioth is an obscure comic character from the comics, too, and that was adapted surprisingly well. I also admit that I laughed at the reference to the Thanos copter, which is an <laughs> old joke that goes way back to the 70s. But I think my personal favorite of these was the old Loki, and Richard E. Grant is absolutely perfect in that role. Um, I do feel like the costume was made to look intentionally ridiculous, like the MCU tends to do with the comic book costumes, but Grant is so convincing in the role, and he has so much presence that he makes that Loki seem believable. Um, did you have a favorite alternate Loki, Mike, or any other references you wanted to mention? Uh, that That is pretty cool, and you're right. I do love references. Um, one of the alternate Lokis gets his right hand bitten off by an alligator Loki, which in an alternate universe kind of way, I think plays on Tyre having his right hand bitten off by Loki's son, Fenrir. So I thought that was cool. I will also agree about Richard E. Grant. Um, he did look ridiculous in the old school Loki style outfit, but he played it so well that it didn't stick out like a sore thumb. I totally bought that he was old man Loki from the Silver Age. Man, yeah, good thing uh, calling the tear thing. I mean, that probably was the intent. So we get to the final episode in the Citadel at the end of time. Everything has been engineered by a being called He Who Remains, who is pretty much indicated to be a version of Kang the Conqueror. That's a change from the comics. I mean, in the books, he wasn't connected to Kang at all. Um, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if he's meant to be Immortus. Um, he's implied to be extremely old. I mean, he's dressed like Immortus in this episode. And in the comics, he was the servant of the Timekeepers. Uh, Immortus was. Anyway, uh, He Who Remains reveals that the TVA exists to prevent timelines from branching out and starting a new multiversal war between a number of alternate kings. He's grown old and tired and he wants an end to running the, the, the multiverse. Uh, so Loki and Sylvie are given a choice. They can take over the TVA and make it something different, or they kill Kang and usher in a new multiversal war. I'll be honest, this Kang does not act at all like any aspect of Kang that I'm familiar with. Uh, the main king is a conqueror of time, and he's usually in it for the challenge of the conquest. Immortus is probably the closest, but I don't see even him approaching the situation the way he does in this episode. I can't deny that Jonathan Majors plays a part really well. It's just not Kang or even Immortus to me. They also seem to be taking out the idea that all the different kings are the life of one person, and instead establishing them all as multiversal variants of the same being. There is some precedent for the Kang variants with the Council of Cross-Time Kangs, and their two Kang solution was to remove his variants. But it seems like, once again, the MCU doesn't want to stick to the comics, and instead they just do their own thing here. But I will say this, I do like the moral question that the Lokis are left with. So I have to ask your take on this, Mike. Is a war that could burn the multiverse worth killing the person responsible for the TVA and everything that it's done in his name? How do you weigh the consequences of a decision that big? I 
think that is a clear case of having to choose the lesser of two evils. And for the record, I think Sylvie made the wrong move. Out of their two options given to them from Kang via Miss Minutes, uh, I think reorganizing the TVA would work uh, a bit differently and putting them back into the timeline was the better option. For me, it's simple math. The terrible things that one Kang can do is nothing compared to millions. And as far as Kangs go, the one they were talking to seemed to be fairly reasonable and peaceful guy, whereas the million other Kangs definitely do not. Yeah, I feel like she did the wrong thing as well. Uh, though it's understandable, Sylvie is so blinded by pain and getting revenge for what was done to her that she just can't see the larger picture. Hiddleston's Loki doesn't have that emotional baggage weighing him down, so even if he may hate what the TVA does, he's able to see that they're wrestling with a complex issue. Probably the best thing they could have done is what uh, He Who Remains suggests. Try to make the TVA a more benign operation and tell the workers the truth, because the alternative is what we're likely going to get in both Loki Season 2 and Avengers Secret War, a multiverse where alternate Kangs are constantly at war with each other. Uh, did you have any points that you wanted to add, Mike? Actually, yes, just a few. Uh, my final thoughts on the series would be that Loki grows throughout the series, like you mentioned. And I think the ball got rolling with Mobius interrogation as it started Loki on the self-examination process. But I will add that Mobius saying that he was born to cause pain, suffering, and death, as well as that time loop prison with Sif, really catapulted his conversion. Listening to her describe him so venomously over and over again as a conniving, craven, pathetic worm clearly had a greater effect effect on him than her punching him and kneeling him, kneeing him over and over again in the balls. Not that I think the beating was not helpful in this leaf turning. Sometimes a good ass whooping can put things into perspective and, and put you back in touch with reality. I think that initial spark that you mentioned from Mobius examination grew from his interactions with Sylvie, finding out, finding out about the destruction of Asgard, the death of Odin, and seeing himself die at the hands of Thanos. One thing you can tell really spun him for a loop was discovering that his will might not be as free as he thought when he learned about the timekeepers and the TBA. That that I almost think that had that been all of the evidence or suggestion, he might have been able to blow it off as ridiculous. Uh, but then Miss Minutes implies that they have no free will, and you could see it in his eyes. He wondered for a moment. And then Kang flat out telling him that their whole path up to that point had been paved by him. I think there was an uncontrollable internal change in Loki that, that caused a very conscious choice to let go and let this new version of himself be. Loki himself says that he knows the things that he has done in the past and knows why he has done them. And that is just not him anymore. The old man Loki, the, the old man Loki asked Mobius. So just like that, you're going to turn your back on something you've devoted your whole life to and mobius says it's never it's never too late to change uh that was true of mobius but i think it also speaks of the change in loki very true and i think that sums things up well i'm honestly curious to see where loki and sylvie would go in uh, season two because this clearly is not the end of things between them the end of season one plays into a lot of the questions of destiny versus free will which i know is a point that really fascinates you mike but i will say that even though it repeats previous points with loki the Disney Plus show generally handles it well, and the show ended up growing on me by the end. But as much fun as this has been, that about wraps up our deep dive into the character of Loki. I know Mike has a deep appreciation for the character, and I know I've gained an appreciation for the God of Mischief myself. Uh, Loki's a complex character with many roles and some really deep layers, as I think we've shown. 
So until next time, uh, thanks for taking the time to listen to us, and thanks to all our patrons who made this uh, podcast possible. I hope you've had fun hanging out with us today on ORP. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to share this episode and help us get the word out. For our Spotify listeners, we ask you to please rate our show as well. That can really help to grow our audience. But to all our listeners everywhere, we want to say thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.